This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. A few years back now, while I was working with my partner on putting together a traveling natural history exhibit entitled Mushrooms, Keys to the Kingdom Fungi, a visual overview to the world of mushrooms through the lens of the most common seasonal mushrooms of our region. Luck would have it that a new book entitled Mycophilia by Eugenia Bone was published at around the same time. It was a wonderful narrative exploring not only the world of fungi, but also the world of people who are smitten with them. When I was told by a mutual friend that Eugenia had written a new book, Microbia, I was intrigued. Any gardener worth his or her salt, any cook trying to prepare tasty, healthy food, any parent trying to grow healthy, happy children knows that we work hand in hand with forces beyond our own sight. And more importantly, beyond our own comprehension in many cases. Yeasts and molds, bacteria and mycorrhiza are all somewhere in there together in my own limited view. We know these forces are there, but we may not have a clear and firm understanding of how, why, where, or when. For the chemists and physicists and microbiologists and other hard scientists among us, the comprehension and curiosity goes far deeper. But for many of us garden variety people, in my experience, we're content enough to accept these relationships between us and the unseen as there, but a little mystical. This was not quite enough for Eugenia Bone. Having begun her journey into understanding mycology, the study of fungi, and then written the book, Mycophilia, which literally means the love of fungi, revelations of the weird world of mushrooms, she became along the way entranced with microbes. She joins us today from Argo Studios in New York City to share more about her journey into this world and the writing of Microbia, a journey into the unseen world around you, out now from Rodale Press. Welcome, Eugenia. Hi, Jennifer. I read Mycophilia years ago now when it first came out, when I was putting together an exhibit on mushrooms of my region for a local natural history museum. And I was particularly taken by both your accessible language in your study of the world of mushrooms and their associated organisms and life cycles, and your humor, which is refreshing in information of this level. And so when I heard you were going to be producing a book on microbia, I was really looking forward to it. Set the scene for us a little bit in terms of how you first became curious and really passionately interested in this kind of information at this point in your life, in your mature adulthood, Eugenia? Well, I guess I kind of woke up to um, microbes when I was researching mycophilia. And it was especially um, when I was researching uh, endophytic fungi. So that's the fungi that live between the cells 
of all plants, all plants in the wild. And it was very, it was fascinating to me because they trade sugar that the plant makes as a result of photosynthesis for immune services. Mm. Um, And then at the same time, this is like around uh, 2010, at the same time, the um, gut microbiome story was going mainstream. And I noticed that the role of endophytic fungi, fungi that live between the cells of plants, was similar to the role of bacteria in us. Mm. And it got me thinking, you know, is there like a kind of paradigm where microbes play a a role in the very existence of their more uh, charismatic hosts? And that's what, that was the question that I was really motivated to, to try to answer. I just became fascinated with the idea that the unseen world played this major role in the seen world, that there was more to life than meets the eye. Yeah, yeah. You used the, the term the gut biome story. For, for listeners who may not be aware of, of what, you're, what you mean when you say that, give a little description of, of that whole concept. Well, it's actually only... Um, been news for about 20 years, but our lower GI, but really, you know, all over us, every niche you can imagine, there's microbial life living, particularly bacteria. And these bacteria are doing, there, there are symbionts that do all kinds of important jobs in maintaining our health. The gut microbiome is a, a population of bacteria, and other organisms that are key to human health. Yeah, yeah. I want to step back a little bit further now before we get deeper into all of these stories because they are all interrelated. And in in this really exciting kind of breathtaking way, the more you learn about them, and I am no expert at all, but I am fascinated by it. Give us a little bit of your own background, Eugenia. Where where did you grow up? Were there influences in your life that led you to be predisposed to being interested and noticing some of these questions you were having? Well, I guess I, I kind of was always awake to nature in terms of food. Growing up in New England, my dad is an, at 91, he is a um, passionate gardener and a good cook too. And I grew up um, really knowing what the taste of a vine-ripened, unrefrigerated tomato tastes like. So I was inter- interested in nature as it related to food. And then my husband and I um, bought some property in Colorado, and one summer it was just a bloom with wild mushrooms. And I love to eat wild mushrooms, but I didn't know which ones to pick. In order to pick wild mushrooms, you need to know a little bit of their biology, like why they grow where they grow. So then I started learning a little bit of their biology, always with the intent to eat them. But the biology, which in the case of mushrooms is called mycology, turned out to be so fascinating to me because fungi connect to plants. They play this huge role in plants. I was originally interested in mycology because of the food connection. But as I learned that fungi were key to forest ecosystems and agriculture, um, 
I started to move deeper into the straight mycology, into the science, and understanding what those relationships were between organisms, fungi and plants. And then from there, the next step was, you know, well, what are the bacteria doing on the fungi? And it became a little bit of a um, Russian uh, doll, you know, with a doll within a doll within a doll kind of exploration. So I was going smaller and deeper instead of expanding outward in my curiosities. It, and it is a kind of expanding out, even though it's going smaller and smaller and smaller in that expansion, which is, which is, I think, one of the really interesting things about any of these topics and the the science of them, but also just the wonder of them, and um, and that's kind of fun. Are you a gardener, Eugenia? I have uh, you know exuberant herb pots in New York City, and I have um, a garden in Colorado. But sometimes I feel like in Colorado I'm more of a waterer than a <laughs> gardener, since that's really what it's about mm-hmm. um, is providing enough water for those plants. Um, what I'm really interested in is um, the organisms that live in soil. Yeah, and so that's that's not so much gardening as, but it is actually key. It is key. It is key, and it's and it's such a expanding conversation in the world of gardening right now, and that interconnectedness, which is something you explore with lovely sort of poetry and scientific basis in microbia uh, is so elemental to what it is to garden, at least to garden with um, with curiosity and with uh, proactive understanding of what each of the elements you're interested in, how they function and why they function and how we can support them um, by greater understanding. I think I first became aware of this same concept of the, um, the the beneficial fungi, and when it became an, a, a, a really actively used element of gardening. And I was living in the United Kingdom uh, in 1999, 2000, and 2001, and Kew was doing a lot of experimentation in their tree population, in their arboretum at Kew Gardens, using beneficial mycorrhiza. It had been already a lot of research had been going into this whole field, but it was just starting to become available to the gardening public as to how it worked, why it worked. And we clearly still don't understand everything by any means, but we are maybe getting a better sense of just how vast what we don't understand is, and how delicate some of that is when we don't treat it well. Um, and that kind of comes back to the, the gut biome story that we're hearing a lot about in our, in our food systems and the soil food web. Clearly, this is the beginning of your writing of mycophilia. You became interested. You wanted to eat them. You got more and more interested in the beautiful complexity of these organisms and their relationships. Talk about the process of saying, you know what, I'm going to write a book about this. What what was your career up until that point? Well, prior to writing Mycophilia, I was writing about food. Mm. Um, so Mycophilia was a popular science book, came out in 2011. Um, but it started to be about food. I mean, it was my interest in food that kind of got the whole thing started. I ended up reporting on this uh, on the mycology, because it was 
awesome to me. I yeah. I was just thought it was beautiful and and I was also involved with the community of amateur mycologists, which is um, you know, it's just one of those great stories where they're all these people who are passionate about mushrooms, you know, who knew? Right. But they're there and they have <laughs> forays and festivals and um and all the folks know each other. In fact, we just lost one of the great um, mentors of the mushroom community, Gary Linkoff. He just oh. died. And it's, you know, the I have to say there's people who love mushrooms all over this country who are crying about mm. his all too soon um, departure from this world. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's we're all very sad. He, he turned a lot of people on to mushrooms. So anyway, it's a large community. And um, I just dove in. I, you know, and that's the kind of person I am, I guess. I kind of follow obsessions. Um, the, the lead-in to studying microbes was a little bit more complex. When I say microbes, I mean the truly invisible things like bacteria and fungi that function on, that don't produce mushrooms or, mm-hmm. or fungi that you can't see because of other aspects of their uh, my, of their biology, so I had the challenge to um, I had the fascination to understand uh, bacteria and other invisible life, but I didn't have the skill set um, to understand something that is described usually with chemical <laughs> formula and scientific terminology. I mean, I was just seriously out of my league, but I wanted to know. So this leads us right into the book and your adventure in starting on this path. And the book became available in early April. Describe for people who, you know, might clearly may not have read it yet, this your the beginnings of your journey into this because it is such a beautiful human story. Well, all right. So I started out wanting to understand the role of microbes in life, particularly bacteria, but also fungi and other types of uh, single-celled organisms. And the way I started was the way I started with uh, mycophilia. I I tried to self-teach, but I really wasn't getting very far because I couldn't read the papers. I mean, they were just so terminology-laden. It was just like wading through mud. I I didn't know what was going on. I just didn't know have any basis in cell biology. I, I had I didn't have the education. I was an English major, and I'd actually spent my whole life thinking I didn't have the DNA to um, understand science and math. But it turns out I do have the genes for like stubbornness and persistence. Um, so when the self teaching uh, avenue closed to me, like as in I was not getting anywhere, I switched to an online biology class. And that didn't really work for me either because I'd finish a lesson in the in one evening, and then the next day when I'd go to the next lesson, I had pretty much forgotten everything that I'd learned previously. And so I'd spend the whole second lesson um, Googling terms that I was supposed to know. And it was really like one confusion led to another confusion led to another confusion. So that wasn't working either. 
And that's when I realized I just needed to go back to school. I just need to go to college and uh, sit in a classroom and interact with a professor. And I was very nervous about that, um, for sure. I didn't know if I had the bandwidth. I'm middle-aged. I thought, for sure, I'm not going to be able to remember anything. I mean, I don't even remember where I parked my car, you know, when I go to the store. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, but I, I just wanted to know. I just, I felt like there was some kind of answer for me. Um, I was on a quests that I, I didn't even really know what the quest was, but I was on it and I wanted it. So I went back to school and I kind of just bucked up and and um, and studied basic biology. But, um, and so part of what I wrote about was what it's like. Uh, well, it's what I learned and what it was like learning it, being back in school and, um, and trying to uh, accommodate all of or trying to um, get used to all the things that were so different from when I was in school. You know, when I was in school, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, blackboards and Xerox handouts. And now everything was um, on the Internet and, you know, these huge classrooms. And I just felt pathetically behind in terms of um, you know, technology and modernism. But, you know, I kind of muddled through and I learned enough basic biology, to read the papers. I started to read the papers that would illuminate more about microbial life than um, I had garnered to date. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with science and food writer Eugenia Bone, whose newest book, Microbia, A Journey into the Unseen World Around You, is out now. Eugenia's human curiosity about the world of microbes is compelling to me right from the start. When she delves early in our conversation into how the unseen world plays a major role in the seen world, there's more to life than meets the eye. As a gardener, I'm hooked. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hi, it's Jennifer, jumping in for your weekly podcast break. At first, it felt a little funny, and even contrived maybe, to speak directly to all of you podcast listeners. Because you know, the radio listeners don't get these bits of our conversation. But it also feels very liberating. I like the formality and more professional feel of the interviews themselves, but I also love being able to speak with you all more conversationally. Early on, I worried that it felt a little unnatural, but then I realized that it was no different than the way I communicate with many of you as it is. I leave voice messages for my sisters, for my lifelong friends, for my daughters. I text and I comment back and forth and DM with many of you gardening friends in the world just like this. So while it used to feel funny, it now feels more complete to be able to share more of what goes on in my own mind and gardening head and heart in response to these conversations, to these interviews, because every one of them grows me along in some way, which is so cool to me, to be able to share that with all of you who listen in this way each week. It's really fun and a privilege, so thank you for listening. 
In this week's interview with Eugenia Bone talking about microbes, it will come as no surprise to any of you who've listened to me for a while now that the point early in the conversation at which she gets into the unseen and seen world and that there's more to life than meets to eye, you will not be surprised that my skin kind of tingled. I love and believe in the garden as this intersectional space, literally and spiritually, for faith and food, for beauty and meaning, for me and you, and as an intersectional space for powerful good in this world. To have a clearer understanding of some of the unseen elements and to once again have something of a blind spot illuminated is one of the best parts of this lifelong relationship with nature and the garden and the garden and its nature. When Eugenia used the analogy of the Russian nesting dolls, I thought, yes, that is exactly it. Or something like the golden mean spiraling into perfect relationship and reflected back at us in all of the garden's life. Now, back to our conversation with Eugenia and the microbes working so powerfully to our benefit in the garden and elsewhere. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back to continue our conversation with food and science writer Eugenia Bone about her own journey into the unseen world of microbes, which resulted in her most recent book, Microbia, A Journey into the Unseen World Around You, out now from Rodale Press. Welcome back. And it was interesting for me reading the book um, to to have that story within a story, this concept of you, you know, being an adult, your children are, are fairly grown, and the the process of going back to school and being in this new environment and learning this really difficult material, which, you know, most of us would have had in high school, but unless we are working in those fields, we probably don't remember that much about it. I remember enough to get me through my gardening challenges, mostly. And um, I think cooks have a general sense of, of some of these concepts, um, and probably the, the better chefs have a, a greater you know understanding of some of these concepts if you're like a molecular guy. Yeah, or and, a gal. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and you know if you're doing things like preserving foods, you, you right. have some of these understandings of just how many different invisible forces are at play. Uh, invisible but still tangible forces are at play in everything you do. And that was one of the things that I really enjoyed was the while you could see your human story of, you know, being in this classroom and the girl next to you with the long blonde hair, flipping her hair and, you know, looking at a guy and looking at her phone and looking at her laptop as not being related, the more you're reading about what you're learning, the more you you know that this is all biology at play. And mm-hmm. there, you know, it is all the same story just writ on different levels of visibility and invisibility which I, I enjoyed a lot. When, you know, when you're doing this study, especially once you get through some of the early challenges of just basic vocabulary and basic concepts and remembering them and understanding them more deeply, perhaps as an adult returning to them, what were, what were some of your greatest 
joys of discovery where you went, oh, man, that is cool? Well, I think that the benefit, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of benefits about being middle-aged and going back to school, (laughs) but one of them certainly was this ability to kind of hover above the material and um, draw insights um, Mm -hmm. about the materials. So, for example, um, I could uh, see the uh, similarities between the way a baby gets its first initial microbiome and the way a seed, a seedling does. Mm. So those kind of conceptual insights were ultimately what I was able to do, I think in part because of my maturity, but also they were my greatest joy. And so, so the kind of uh, like examples of that, and it was constant um, because that's the way nature is. Mm-hmm. The more you look, the more beautiful it gets. But um, so just starting from the beginning, I, when I, f- I, I, I was overwhelmed when I first realized that microbes, when like we're talking about bacteria and, and their sister organism, archaea, are the bridge between the non-living and the living worlds. Those microbes, um, what they do is they, uh, they utilize inorganic, um, they, they capture nutrition from inorganic sources like the atmosphere and rocks, and they terrestrialize it in themselves. They're the bottom of the food chain. They link what lives to what doesn't live. So that was, to me, like kind of revelation number one of like hundreds. And I didn't realize that um, bacteria oxygenated our atmosphere. It was such a revelation to me that life changes something as grand as the atmosphere around the planet. I didn't realize that life, that bacteria... Um, was central, that it was a marriage of microbes that produced the cell type that we are that and that plants are and fungi are that produced the more complex cell type that would go on to be the, the charismatic um, creatures of the world that we see everywhere. You know, that just takes me up to, what, like two billion years ago. <laughs> yeah. Some of the some of these moments, some of these revelation moments throughout the book of concepts that become clear to you and timelines, you know, that are vast and both microscopic and macro concepts that are kind of mirroring each other throughout what you're studying is, I think, it's it's just so kind of mind-boggling and it makes you see everything a little differently. And that seemed to be the case for you. Yes. When I started to think about the world from the microbial point of view, when I started to think about life from the microbial point of view, I wasn't seeing how things are separate from each other, how I'm separate from um, my uh, family members or how a plant is separate from soil. But from the microbial point of view, I was able to see how everything is 
connected and unified. I mean, from the microbial point of view, a plant is indistinguishable from soil. Microbes can migrate in and out. I mean, bacteria can migrate in and out of the root cells of plants. So what does that mean? There's that there's a the border between plants and soil is actually a microbial. And you can see that as like, are they separate? Are soil and plants separate? Or you can see it from the microbial point of view, which is saying no, they're unified. And they're unified in this beautiful and beneficial systematic way that I think from certainly our culture at this point in its evolution and adaptations, it makes you see a lot of our behaviors and reactions to events in the world, whether that's in the kitchen or in the garden or, you know, on our skin and in our guts, it makes us it makes us interrogate how we are treating them and what it means to to live in relationship with them. Well, certainly, you know, we put our we we define things. You know, we draw lines around nature. We say, okay, plants are autotrophs; they make their own food, and um, you know, and and we are heterotrophs. We 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 gather our food. Um, but nature doesn't color in the lines. Mm-mm. And it's really um, kind of cool because you can see how that how nature um, doesn't color in the lines when you look at things from the microbial point of view. So there's this um, study going on at Rutgers where the scientists are seeing bacteria migrating into the plants, and then the plants are eating the bacteria. <laughs> They're getting, they're like harvesting nitrogen and all those, you know, yummy nutrients from the bacteria. And I always thought, well, you know, there's carnivorous plants. Okay, that's that's a separate category. But maybe we're wrong to call plants autotrophs. Maybe they're all, depending on their needs and environmental stresses, potentially um, bacterivores. <laughs> you know, so it's it's those the these like lines that that we draw around things, I'm beginning to think or maybe are less instructive. I mean, they have to exist, right? You have to have taxonomy and stuff or you can't study. You have to have names for things. But I wonder if it's really um, illustrates the, uh, the sort of connectedness and unified nature of nature um, as well as, uh, uh, as it should yeah. or could. And so a couple of things that you you sort of work on and talk about and, and discover and, and kind of illustrate for us in the book um, have to do with these concepts of, you know, what bacteria are, what they do, what they don't do, how effective are we at understanding them at some point at a certain, you know, I think when we hear the word bacteria, we often still jump to bacterial infection, um, to bacteria being um, often negative. And, um, and then we, we, there's been a whole craze for probiotics and adding, and this is true in the garden as well as in nutrition and food. Um, describe a little bit, 
you know, where where you came to, what understanding you came to as you studied some of that on, on a more practical level? Well, I guess the number one thing is it's not a matter of good bacteria or bad bacteria because bacteria are plural. I mean, you don't hear, you don't even hear the word bacterium very often. <laughs> one bacterium can't do very much. There has to be a lot of them for them to present any kind of action. So in, a, in terms of like human health or uh, let's say um, uh, plant health or soil health, it's not so much which, what types of bacteria are present, although that matters. It's in what quantities they are present because it's a quantity game for bacteria. It's all about do you have enough numbers to do stuff? Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes that goes for so, goes for soil and for your gut, your inner soil. Um, when you eat certain foods, you feed certain populations of bacteria, and that population grows, and certain things can happen. Um, so, the nature of um, bacterial population ecology was something that was a game changer for me. And I think it's key to understanding gut health and soil health and plant health for that matter, what populations are present, but in what numbers. Um, and the other, another aspect of that same thing is that when you look at something like probiotics, well, you know, compost is a probiotic. Ultimately, it's about adding microbes in order to bump up population numbers. So these um, ideas uh, are um, kind of like almost patterned over and over again, regardless of the environment or habitat, right? So what's true of our gut is also true of, in terms of its microbial ecologies, what's true of our gut tends to, seems to be true also of a plant, seems to be true also of soil. Um, And so the lesson, the sort of takeaway is it's not, there's not, it's, there's no value judgment that can succeed if you apply it to these organisms. Just like, you know, the famous uh, example in biology class of population ecology and kind of how it works is what the wolves in Yellowstone Park. So the local ranchers were freaking out because the wolves were killing their sheep. So the um, so the park uh, got rid of the wolves. But when the wolves were gone, the elk went crazy. They increased in numbers. They started to congregate around the banks of streams. They ate all the willows. There was no willows for the beaver to make their dams. Um, Without dams, the ducks didn't, you know, so there's this cascading effects. It's, it's not, it's not that the elk were bad in their own natures. It's just the elk in the wrong population numbers is trouble. So ultimately, the goal is to well, nature has reached certain environmentally sustainable numbers of population for a given habitat, and that changes if the environment changes, like, um, you know, it gets hotter, for example, or drier or wetter. But, and the same thing goes for interior 
for our interior. We are the environment. The microbes live in our guts and also on our skin. And the choices we make as to the foods we um, we supply and and um, the temperatures we live in and so on. Um, but really, it's the foods we supply that affects the population ecology. We're the habitat; they're the inhabitants. <laughs> you know, and so that just that same pattern is everywhere. That's population ecology. You know. Yeah, and and when you start applying it to the different habitats you're talking about, whether it's your gut or it's your garden, um, and they're both the same in many cases, the you start to realize that if you kill off something, just as you were, you know, that analogy of the wolves to the elk, to the willow, to the beavers, to the stream, is so, it's so important to think about every time you make a choice about what you put in your garden um, what you put in your body and what you are trying to kill. So that if there's a problem, the answer maybe should be a nonviolent one of not what should you kill, but what should you support. Yeah, and exactly. The the studies coming out from the importance of food that is homegrown, whether it's in your own garden or from a farmer's market or, or locally grown and you buy it at a local market, that direct relationship between the healthy microbiology of a soil being imparted to those plants, which whether you're eating the plant or you're eating the meat that ate the plant, it all should be reflected in your gut so that if you're eating Flaming Hot Cheetos, my children might be listening to this program, so maybe they'll hear that. Um, you are not going to feed the same microbiology as when you eat the fresh carrot or um, the fresh mushrooms from from the market. And, you know, some of the things we have become accustomed to doing, such as, you know, washing everything that we eat, um, Some of the the studies coming out about what we are losing in terms of the microbial populations that actually help us uh, process those foods in a healthy manner is just fascinating to me. And there is just more information coming in every day on this relationship. Well, that's exactly right. The microbiome of the soil affects the microbiome of the plant. The microbiome of the plant affects the microbiome of the plant eater. It's We all get our microbes the same way, mm. all our mature microbes, not our initial microbes, but we all get our mature microbes the same way from uh, the environment. For us, it's what we eat. And you could say for plants, it's what they um, are able to, to coax <laughs> out of the soil. You know, so the plant is is producing these like yummy seepages and it attracts bacteria that it needs to do certain jobs, um, which are very wide from everything from producing hormones that regulate plant growth to um, producing chemicals that are key to sexual reproduction. I mean, strawberries are red because of a Uh, chemical produced by a bacteria. And they're also sweet for that reason. (laughs) So eh, it's pretty cool. It's super cool. It's so cool. Um, So 
uh, at one point you say um, that you had learned in the process of, of this journey up to the point that you wrote the book, and clearly the journey continues, but that um, that one of the things you learned was that taking a probiotic was kind of meh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why? So describe that and, and why that is an interesting uh, piece of information. So probiotics are um, is adding bacteria, right? So uh, compost is probiotic for a field, and uh, probiotic for us would be eating live bacterial cultures. And the problem, my, my problem is twofold. One is the probiotic industry, you know, of yogurts and kefirs and supplements. To me, it's like questionable because who knows how many of what species um, you need and whether you're getting in a particular supplement um, live cultures, um, viable cultures? Uh, um, are the cultures even getting past your stomach because of your method of acquiring them? It's all like uh, kind of uh, loosey-goosey. Probiotics um, do seem to have a real benefit if you've got certain kinds of diarrhea, but the science is just not in as to you know how effective uh, they are. So that said, my approach is just um, eat fermented foods, homemade fermented foods as part of your diet. I mean, it's not like brain science. <laughs> I mean, you get some healthy cultures if you make yogurt or uh, make sauerkraut yourself. It's a lactobacillus. It's a good um, it's it's a it's a microbe whose numbers you want to have abundant in your body, but really, it's ultimately the best way to get it is to do it at homemade. Where you you know when you when you buy a yogurt in a store, a probiotic yogurt in the store, you know it, not only did it go through manufacturing, but it went through transportation to the store and then the storage issues and all that. You know who knows what's in there. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. As gardeners and nature lovers, I think we're naturally open to the joys of discovery that are constantly gifted to us as a result of this love and engagement. But science and food writer Eugenia Bone might take this joy of discovery to the next level. Today, she's sharing with us her own adventure returning to university in order to study microbiology. The revelations, social, scientific, and philosophical, come fast and furious. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. In this conversation with Eugenia, there's another point in which she talks about how microbes don't operate in their lives with the same understanding of boundaries and delineations that we do. To them, she says, the soil and the plants are all the same. They move in between them with ease, which is kind of crazy cool when you stop to really think about it. I talk about this idea of boundaries and delineations between us and our gardens, our gardens in the world, and back again in the May View From Here newsletter. The energetic boundaries of our lives, seen and unseen, 
as seen through the lens of our home gardens is really interesting to me. Where we tend them well, these boundaries, and where they might need some more establishment or dismantling. Happy May. If you want to check out the May newsletter, head over to cultivatingplace.com. You can read it there and subscribe. Okay, now back to our conversation with Eugenia Bone and her journey into microbia. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with science and food writer Eugenia Bone, whose most recent book, Microbia, A Journey into the Unseen World Around You, is both an exploration and celebration of the power and complexity and importance of microbes in every aspect of our lives. They are, as she says with wonder, a bridge between the living and the non-living world. Welcome back. And it simplifies, and I think the same thing is true of the whole concept in the gardening world of inoculating your plants or your soils with uh, beneficial mycorrhiza, which the concept is a, is a great one, but the, the current method is so dumbed down as to be questionable into, as to its efficacy. It, it takes the idea that there is a single set of beneficial mycorrhiza that are applicable and useful for every single circumstance. And the fact right. is that, you know, it's like a watershed approach. If you have my specific place on this earth is affected by the soil here, the air here, the climate here, the geology that then feeds the soil and the water and the plants. And so to buy a beneficial mycorrhiza or a probiotic at my store, who knows where they came from and if they have any use at all in my very specific environment. Right. I mean, we're trying to, you know, take nature out of the um, equation and just do our own mix. Right. (laughs) It's a little bit like, you know, making a cake and then going, I'm putting in the baking powder afterwards. (laughs) No, you just can't really add I mean, you can add microbes, add add microbes. That's what compost is, but you know the the complexity of the soil food web and its role in plant health is such that it seems to me much more effective to just allow nature to do her thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it seems to me like not getting in the way of nature is the real challenge. And finding ways to let your garden, um, for example, grow without tilling and without the addition of um, fertilizers. Mm-hmm. Or because, pesticides or herbicides or, or just herbicides step, herbicides stay or out of the way. Yeah. 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 If yeah. you stay out of the way, you know, you might have some problems that you'll have to treat. Um, but that's more like sort of park management. Where mm-hmm. you just like you were saying earlier, where you have you know, there's times where you want to go in there and sort of uh, and support some plants and maybe um, uh, and get rid of others that are invaders or whatever. But by and large, if you leave the fungal networks in place, um, your soil will hold together. It'll it'll sequester water. It'll sequester carbon. It'll deliver right. you know all of these um, environmental services to the plant. Um, and if you don't add fertilizer, you don't suppress the plant's 
um, uh, reach out to organisms that can benefit it, it on a non-nutritional level, like, right. you know, bacteria that will fight battles for it against uh, pests that, that, um, that might appear or pathogens that might appear down the road. An analogy for soil health would be like a temp agency. A temp agency that has a lot of different jobs that your company can hire um, from or hire for, like someone who does Excel and someone who write grants, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Then the um, the better off for your company, right? The the better if it, its um, ability to handle problems as they come up because they can always find somebody who can handle that problem like your you know computer breaks down or something. Same thing goes for the plant. If there's a lot of microbial diversity in the soil, the plant is able to recruit as needed different types of organisms that can do different jobs for that plant. And so a diverse soil um, is a uh, is a is like a temporary it's like a temp agency for jobs that the plant may need to recruit at some point depending on you know stuff that happens environmental right. that goes down um, and when you uh, till or when you use fertilizers or you use fungicides then you um, you degrade that temp agency to maybe a couple of jobs. Maybe the only jobs they do is, you know, I don't know, window washing. They're not going to be that useful to your company unless they have a chronic window washing problem. Right. So who who is your target audience for this book? I mean, I, I, I gather certainly your primary audience was yourself. You were interested in this in this topic on a very personal and passionate level. But in putting a book out on this, who is your target audience and why is this important to you, Eugenia? Well, I mean, I have to say, like, part of um, the, the, the dirty truth is I wrote the book because that's my, um, m- my inclination. It's my obsession. It's like kind of what I do, right? So I would have written it even if I thought Nobody was interested as long as someone would publish it. But mm-hmm. that said, um, I really wrote my audience, who I kept in mind in the course of writing this, was people like me, people who um, were hearing about um, microbes, uh, about microbiology in the news, and were feeling out of the loop, you know, feeling like they weren't really sure um, what was real and what was not real, or their their understanding of the subject was full of holes. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this book with the person in mind who doesn't have a microbiology background, but is but wants to make sense of but is aware of what's th- that microbiology is changing the way we think about human health and agriculture. So it's like a, um, well, let me put it this way. Half the world is microbial. If you don't know a little microbiology, 
you can't know half of yourself. And so I'm writing for everybody who doesn't have a little microbiology. It's a broad survey that, that depends on analogy and metaphor primarily, um, but is ultimately about providing an insight into how these organisms affect their hosts. I'd like to end the interview, Eugenia, with you reading um, from the, the very end of the book. When I first started to study biology, I explained to my daughter, Carson, that I wanted to understand the deep feeling of connectedness with nature and other people that I so frequently had, what the ecologist Stan Rowe described as the sense of wonder and affection felt for the splendor and bounty of the earth. It sounds like you're just trying to find a scientific answer for your spiritual feelings, she said. I had to laugh because she was right. I wasn't looking to find out microbes are God, though I am tempted. It kind of makes sense that God wouldn't be one huge, great entity, but actually billions and billions of tiny ones. But I did learn that microbes are the basis of all things biological, that they created living and to a great degree do our living on our behalf. They are our ancestors and our most intimate companions, and they permeate and link all life on Earth. It took a glimpse into the unseen world for me to see what I already knew intuitively. We have co-evolved with all that lives on the planet, and as a result, we share everything. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today, Eugenia. It's been a pleasure, and Microbia was a fascinating read. Thank you. Thank you so much. Eugenia Bone is a science and food writer, herb tender, and plant waterer living in New York City and Colorado. Her newest book, Microbia, A Journey into the Unseen World Around You, is a testament to the beauty, magic, and importance of the microbial organisms that make all of life on Earth possible. Microbia is out now from Rodale Press. Bone's last book, Mycophilia, Revelations from the Weird World of Mushrooms, was published in 2011. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by California Public Broadcasting and you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.